Our second scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians. It's chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Hear these words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm not talking about Christ in the church, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. May we hear God's Spirit. Lord, have mercy. Well, as Jonathan has already teed up, we're tackling some, some words that have quite a reputation in our culture, but largely within our Christian culture. Today we talk about one of my favorite words ever. <laughs> a word that for anyone who knows me knows how innately I embody this word. It's call upon my life, and not just my life as a Christian, but as a woman, as a wife. And that word is submission. For those of you who don't know me, then the first three sentences of this sermon was my attempt at sarcasm. Submission is defined as the action, the fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. So let me begin by owning my own personal bias, because I think it's important as a preacher that I'm aware of that and that I make sure you're aware of that before we tackle a text. I grew up in a family of three. I'm an only child. And I was raised by two parents who did practically everything together, and still do. They met at school for Bell South, and practically all of my life, they drove to and from work together. From all I could ever see, they were egalitarian in their decision-making and in their working, in their creating in their planting, even in their furniture moving in my house, they did things together. I did not have a more submissive mother than I had submissive father. They submitted to one another on different things, mind you, like my father submitted to my mother's will to have another dog a couple of years ago. And my mother, years before that, submitted to my father's will of allowing me to have a horse when I was young. It was always a give-and-take relationship. One of my earliest memories was of seeing my mother regularly wear a silver bracelet, 
with the words E-R-A on it. You see, she worked in an environment that was heavily male-dominated, and she was regularly harassed by male colleagues. I remember her teaching me at a young age about what the Equal Rights Amendment was, which is still not yet ratified in the United States for states like Alabama that won't yet agree that men and women should be treated equally in terms of employment. But my dad was always supportive of my mom's advancement, as she was his. They equally supported one another. When I attended the University of Alabama as a freshman, I remember attending every campus ministry that I could. I was looking for my people in Tuscaloosa. At times, these ministries would invite me to join small group studies, where I would get together with other women, mind you, and we would read books like The Power of a Praying Wife. Now, mind you, I wasn't yet married, or a beloved favorite in 1996, A Lady in Wedding, in Waiting. Now, I took this book, you're going to hear a lot about this book in the coming weeks, but I mean, look at it. I mean, I took it seriously, y'all. I mean, I don't know what the point of highlighting an entire page is. But I did it. (sighs) All of these books, in one way or another, were attempting to help me understand what my role and my place was to be as a faithful Christian woman who was meant to be submissive and pure. I met Steve when I was 18 years old as a freshman at the University of Alabama that same year. I remember after we had been dating for a few months, students from multiple of these campus ministries began calling out of concern to ask me if our relationship was a biblical one. Stephanie, could Steve really be your spiritual leader? Now, as I grew and began to share with others my call to ministry, they wanted to know how was this going to work out? If I felt called to an unbiblical role of being a woman in ministry, how could Steve lead me? Would there not be a fight for the authority, the spiritual authority within our family? More than anything, more than them thinking I shouldn't be in ministry, them calling into question my submission and Steve's authority sent me running out of their doors. But at that time, I didn't understand yet how to read the Bible with context. I just knew that their interpretation did not fit my tradition. It did not fit my experience, nor did it fit my ability to reason. And as a United Methodist, checking three of the four boxes for the Methodist quadrilateral was enough for me. So I got married, and I began attending Beeson Divinity School which is a part of Sanford University here in Birmingham. I took as many Greek classes as I could. While studying Greek, I wrote this paper on the very text of Ephesians 5 that we read today. Because when something doesn't settle right with me or I just simply don't agree with it, I have a tendency to lean in, to try to understand it better. I turned this paper in with fear and trembling. Because you see, Beeson Divinity School was and is conservative. 
And I was not nearly comfortable, nor did I embody the term liberal at that time, but I was the only woman on campus getting a master's in divinity to be a ordained pastor, so therefore I was known as the token liberal on campus. So I knew that my professor likely interpreted this passage in deeply different ways than this paper would suggest. And I was nervous. I reread it for the first time in 20 years as I wrote this sermon, and I gotta say, I think she did all right. <laughs> he said, a good paper, and he gave me an 84B. But Mary Evelyn Holloway already told me this morning, as an English teacher, she would have at least given me an 86. So. <laughs> You see, in early Palestinian and Jewish society, women were relegated to having roles only within the family structure. Roles of running a home, gathering food, and tending children. They were not permitted leadership in the synagogue or in the community. They had the same social standing as a Gentile slave, and they were not educated. Even in Greco-Roman culture, marriages were arranged based on the advancement of families and the ownership of property, since a woman was not permitted to gain an inheritance in her family. So families made agreements, dowries were paid, and people were wed. The Roman influence of patria potesta, which translates the rule of the father, began to have a deep impact on society at this time. This would later become known as the root of patriarchy, which is still evident today in the world we live and the church we serve. Roman law gave husbands ultimate authority over those within their household. So this meant children, wives, slaves. This power was seen as absolute, giving the husband authority to banish, disown, and even put to death any member of his household. In time, this culture became codified into a set of household rules that were understood to be the way things were done regarding roles between husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and their masters. Peter and Paul, or those who wrote in their names, in several of their letters, well, they write about these societal norms, these codes for the household. Centuries later, these household codes, well, they were so prominent in society that Martin Luther called them hostafel. Tracing this, this line, this understanding of how these codes originated, their context, and how they became so embedded in our faith understanding, they become a cultural artifact, ingrained in our society, woven in and throughout our scripture. I think this can help us see what I think we're meant to understand this morning. This history is important in order to understand the nuances of the writings that we actually find in our Bible. The culture was what it was. Therefore, of course, we find contextual evidence for the way people lived in our scriptures. Yet, the passage don't, these passages, they don't fit for us today. And therefore, they leave us wondering, what are we supposed to do with passages like Ephesians 5? In order to better decide what to do, I think we should dig a little deeper into the text and see what else is there, along with the culturally understood codes. Did the biblical authors in any way 
change those codes as they put them into our scripture? And the answer is yes. Yes, they did. Matter of fact, they added to these codes significantly. They said husbands should in fact love their wives. To people in first century, they would have heard that and been like, what? Because I just explained to you, marriage was not arranged based on love. It was arranged based on the transfer of property and the advancement of families. Often the two getting married had nothing to do with the arrangement. So love was never a part of the picture. But now they're told husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Never before had someone said to husbands, you should love your wife. Love their wives as they love their own body, as they care for and feed their own body. This was radical. It was liberal. It was different from anything they had experienced in their culture. Of course wives were to submit to their husbands. Everyone knew that. What they didn't know was that husbands were expected to love their wives. And this part of this passage to them would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Then my favorite part that I feel in our Christian culture is rarely preached upon and was never brought to my attention in college when folks were so concerned about whether or not Steve and I had a biblical relationship is the verse that comes before all of these verses. Verse 21, that clearly says you submit to one another. So not only were husbands meant to love their wives, to give up their lives for her, to care for her as they would care for themselves, but they were called to submit to their wives too. In these biblical passages, what is shocking is not what feels out of place to us today, but what was shocking is what felt out of place to them. In these archaic passages for us today, women were actually given rights and freedoms that they had never had before. These passages that sound appalling to my ears were liberating to first century ears. Women, children, slaves had a voice in a way they never had before. And remember, as we've already read this morning and sung in our middle hymn, throughout the New Testament, we find New Testament writers reminding us that in Christ, there is no distinction between male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We are all one. Too often we read these passages with a 21st century mind and we critique it, which leads us to devalue any rich meaning it might have for us today. But truly this passage was a marvel of its time, a marvel that it was kept in our Bible at all. For its culture, it was evidence of the wide love, the going beyond what was understood as culturally acceptable, faithful, and even sanctioned by their governments. So when I read it today, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to hear the word submission in this biblical context, not with the cringe-worthy nature that we find it so often meant today. Instead, I want you to hear it, and I want you to think of what was intended, which is a measure of love. The truth is, love of our Creator always has a measure of submission to it. Always. Love is not force. It never, ever can be. 
Love submits to those it loves when harm is not being demanded. Think about your most loving relationships. A parent, a partner, a child, a friend, a spouse. Do you not in numerous ways find yourself submitting to the one you love? Letting their desires, their will rise to the surface at times. Choosing their good and comfort over your own. Of course you do. The difference is that this should always be done by all of those involved, not just some. Love is not one-sided. I don't submit to Steve, and know that shocks y'all, any more than he submits to me. And the truth is, together, though I promise you they will not agree to this right now, Together, we submit to our children's desires, and they at times submit to ours, too. In our role as your pastor and you, the congregation, there are times that I submit to the way you want things done, to the things that are meaningful to you, to protect you and your traditions. And there are plenty of times that out of love for me and my leadership, you submit to the way I want things done or the way I lead. This is what a loving relationship looks like. Love always practices in measure some way of submission, but it should always, always, always be mutual, equal, and free of harm. We can reclaim submission as a Christian value, a Christian virtue, as long as it is not a Christian woman's virtue. It is a virtue of love. It is a way of living out divine love within us that shows selfless agape for others. It is a character trait of the divine as God, but inviting us into a more graceful, receptive, and loving way of life. That way of loving and living, well, I think it's something that we could all submit to. Amen.